But uh, we went over the church mission statement, love God, love people, serve King uh, Jesus, and expand His kingdom. We expand His kingdom when? First and foremost, when we come into the kingdom through repentance and faith in what Christ has done for us, and also when we share with others. And we're going to have uh, our preacher brother who's going to come, Brother Justin, is going to come and quickly share in a few, in a few minutes his testimony. Brother Justin, would you come, please, brother? Can you hear me? Good, good. All right, thank you, thank you. Well, I appreciate everybody joining together to praise Christ. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he magnificent in everything that he does? So just to condense exactly how I came into fellowship with God in Christ, a series of events about seven years ago placed me at the edge of a river with my pistol to my head and with two choices. I said, either I'll kill myself now and end my misery because of my life, or I'll take this drug and slowly destroy myself, killing myself slowly, knowing what it does to me. And me being the coward that I was at the time, I chose to destroy myself with methamphetamines. So for five years, I was a slave to my addiction. I literally walked, lived, and breathed for the purpose of living a lifestyle committed to feeding my addiction. I would rob, I would steal. If you left your car on with the keys in it and you weren't in it, I'd jump in it and ride off with it. Whatever I could do to feed my addiction, I would go to the, to the ends of the earth to kill myself with this addiction. And so choosing between the pistol and methamphetamines for a five-year to six-year period of time in my life. That expanse was a time to where I was a sold-out servant to Satan, to myself, and to my sin. But there was a moment where I was living with my drug dealer at the time. I was in the, on the second floor, and it was like the Holy Spirit himself had rolled back the heavens like a scroll and come into that room and said, Stand up. It is time for you to move on past your addiction. It was almost like when God called Abraham to come out of the country and go to a place where he would go to dwell. It was the same concept with me. And I looked over at my wife at the time who was my girlfriend. I said, God is calling us out of this. It's time to move on. Are you willing to serve Christ with me? Are you willing to let go of the things of this world? Are you willing to let go of the grasp of all of the things that we've been held by, the drug addiction and all of this? And she said, let's go do it. And so we left. So we left. And from that day, two and a half years ago, since then, we've been free from meth addiction. So I want to give God the glory for that rescue. You know, Ephesians, excuse me, Galatians chapter 1 verses 4 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, who gave himself, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this evil world, to deliver us out of this world into the arms of the everlasting God, who is a wonderful and merciful Savior. And that is my life's testimony. That is who I am. And so just briefly, that's, just, that's what God has done. And, and just in mentioning, everyone on this row was in the streets with me. Each of these people here, my wife, that's one of my best friends, his girlfriend, we were all there together. All of us, this whole entire row, were in the same position. 
And God, by the gracious power of His Holy Spirit, delivered us, rescued us, and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Thank you. Well, you've already heard Justin's testimony. And now you're going to get to hear from him personally. So I want to invite you to make sure you have your Bible. Turn to Psalm 19. And uh, we're going to start there here in just a second. You can pull that title up there, Sam. And uh, we're going to talk about the glorious God of creation, truth, and holiness as we look at Psalm 19. And I will just say to you, as before Justin comes, I appreciate what God has done in this young man's life. Um, and that, that testimony is no fluff. I mean, it's, it's true from start to finish. And to see what God has done in this young man's life in just a little over two years is, is nothing but an evidence of the Holy Spirit and, and God's, God's transforming power. And I want to say this before he comes. Many of you in here today need that type of transforming power. And it only comes through repenting of our sin and putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, and may God give us ears to hear what he would say to us today. So, Brother Justin, would you give him a warm Lake Wildwood welcome as Brother Justin Fordham comes to the pulpit this morning. Yeah, it is now. Good, good. All right, well, praise God. I, am, I feel so blessed to be able to come to Christ. And uh, I think it's just a work of providence. You know, God is sovereign. He is the ruler over all creation. There's even verses in the Proverbs that declare that the counsel of the Lord stands. Many are the decisions in a man's heart, but it is the counsel of the Lord that will stand. Basically, that's saying that we have a lot of choices that we make in life. There's a lot of paths that we take, a lot of things that we do. But in the end, it's the sovereign purpose of God that is going to stand in the life of the believer. And that's exactly how I was introduced to Brother Paul here. And I want to take a second before I get into this sermon and praise God for the flow of expositional preaching that I hear from him. It is absolutely a necessity that we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible or the Psalms or whatever the case may be because there is a lack of knowledge in the body of Christ today. People jump all over the place making the Bible say what they want the Bible to say rather than getting out of the truth of God what God put in the truth of the Word. Expositional preaching is, 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 is the only way Topical exposition or whatever the case may be. And so I just wanted to thank God for that. Listening to his sermons have touched my life. Literally, I love hearing the word of God exposited as the Holy Spirit leads him. And today I pray that the Holy Spirit will enlighten the eyes of your heart. He will give you ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart that is an open door to hear the truth. So as you're well aware, Psalm 19 is what... Uh, I decided that I would preach on, obviously, through the power and demonstration of the Spirit. And it's funny because I've not preached from the Psalms yet. I've preached from different books. I've preached through Galatians completely verse by verse and then did some other things on the conditioned nature of man and our uh, enslavement as outside of Christ as being slaves to Satan, sin, and self and different avenues and things that God has placed on my heart. But this is the first Psalm. 
So I'm not going to be able to literally give you a full, in-depth, verse-by-verse exposition of the entire psalm. So what I've done is, is condensed it down to three blocks. Like he said, it's the glory of God in creation, truth, and in holiness. So the first block is the first six six verses of the psalm. They declare the glory of God in creation. So I want to touch on this first. I want to bring out what is David saying whenever he mentions the creation, being the voice of God, not having a voice, but being the voice of God to the very ends of the world and other things of that nature. So we'll start. I want to read the first six verses, and then we'll get into the explanation. Starting at verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like the bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The first thing I want you to notice immediately is the summation of this entire psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. Everything in the created order serves the purpose of magnifying the explosive, glorious, magnificent, all-consuming power by which God brought forth this entire universe into being. It superbs the purpose to serve His glory. Everything is about the glory of God from the very start in Genesis, from the first verse of all the way through to Revelation. You'll notice that every aspect of creation... From the ocean and the creatures in it, the earth and all that's on it is a purpose. It serves the purpose of glorifying the never-ending awesome power of a God who loves his people. So creation here is in the first six verses. The divine purpose is to continually point back to the fact that there is a God who created. We know that Romans speaks of us being aware of God creating because of the things that he's made. That they are evident to us through the created order. Verses 2 and 3 speak about even the days and the nights. Though they have no ability to speak verbally, they declare without words, as the psalm says, the glory of God. They speak of the glorious creation that God used for a catalyst to glorify himself. So it's as if creation is resounding Literally speaking to us throughout all existence. It's like the heavens themselves are standing up and pointing straight to the God. Straight to the King. Straight to the Lord. Eternal, immortal, invisible God. So that we might bow in humble adoration to His authority as King. Then verses 3 through 6 speak of the awesomeness of creation and how the sun even has been set on its course by God. How it literally follows the predetermined course that Christ has set it to follow. I want you to know that. Notice that. That the sun literally rises and goes from one end, following a circuit, all the way to the other. It's like a bridegroom in his glory coming out and displaying himself to his bride. We have this imagery in scripture about how God does things. And now we are learning in these first verses, 1 through 6, that God is displaying his magnificence through his created order. 
Christ holds everything in His grasps. The Bible says that He has been given all authority in heaven and in earth. He is the heir of all things. He is the reigning ruler supreme over all creation. There is nothing that is hidden from His sight. The Word of God plainly says... For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joint and of marrow, and is a discerner of the thought and intent of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and naked to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It divides the soul. It divides the spirit. It judges the intents. It judges the heart. The word of God is powerful. And the demonstration of his word is supremely expressed through his creative decree in the created order. The stars were set in place so that we could enjoy looking at the supremacy of Christ. So that we could enjoy his creation. Not just fellowship with one another, but all of the things that God in His glorious expression of life, how He creates with His Word, creating from nothing. Literally creating everything from nothing spontaneously from the energy that exists infinitely within Himself. But I want to mention one thing about the natural man. What does the natural man, and what I mean by that is the person who's outside of Christ. You know what they do with the glorious created order? Romans 1, 20 through 23 says exactly what the natural man does with the created order. And I want to read these verses so you can get an idea of just how fallen man is whenever it comes to anything that has to do with the Lord. It says, starting at verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's creation. Even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Understand that the creation is a display of God's existence, and it leaves man without excuse. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So fallen man by nature exchanges the glory of God to worship the thing that God created rather than worshiping the one who created it. All that God has created, all that He has done, all the magnificent creative display, the work of His hands, the universe on display, leaves us, the human race, everybody, without excuse on the day of judgment. Many people say that you must make Jesus Lord of your life. When in reality, He is Lord of your life regardless if you make Him Lord of your life or not. You will either submit to His command through faith in Christ or you will remain a hell-bound hater of God in judgment. That is the truth of the gospel. There's a lot of preachers who just preach that God is love and God is love. Don't get me wrong. But if you preach one attribute of God to the exclusion of the other, you're preaching another gospel. God is judgment and God is love. He's made provision through Christ. If you believe, you will be saved is what the gospel says. So you will bow before Him either in His judgment or you will bow before Him as the Lord of mercy. Nobody will receive injustice when the glorious justice of Christ is accomplished. 
For you and I, though, as children of God, those who have believed, those who have come into fellowship with the Trinity, the created order, and the Lord is something to relish over. It's something that we look at and we marvel over. It's the excellency of the power of God on display. If you would consider with me for a moment the universe, how God has cast the stars in the sky, and how He's flung the galaxies into their celestial positions perfectly. Think about how even the endless reaches of space, everything is keeping its perfect course according to the all-powerful will of God. How the formations of the stars and death of stars and the birth of black holes and the death of black holes, the beginning of galaxies and the extinction of galaxies all move at the command of Christ. Now I want you to pause for a moment in your mind. Think about the glory of God in all of these things. Now I want you to come down a level. Come down one level. Let's come to the earth in its glories. Let's come to the earth and its glories. Consider the animal kingdom and how God feeds it. How he takes care of the birds and ensures the survival of the animal kingdom. Think about the life in the ocean. Think about the creatures in the sea and how God sustains them and directs them and leads them. Think about how God has seemingly suspended the earth at a perfect distance from the sun so that life on earth can thrive. Think about all of the glories of God, even how the molecular structure of every physical thing is upheld by the word of Christ's power. How even the dust particles are keeping their movement in position according to the will of the Creator. Amen. Now let's pause for one more moment. Pause, pause, pause. God is taking care of this world. God is taking care of this world. Now in your mind, I want you to look into a mirror. I want you to look into a mirror and what do you see? You see a reflection of yourself. You see you. So do you think that the one who has charge over the universe and every facet of it cannot direct your life into righteousness? Do you think that he can't manage you as his children? Do you think that the one who calls the stars by name can't direct your life for his highest glory and your highest good? Hold on to Him, child of God. The same one who manages the universe providentially controls your life. And He loves you. Not because of what you've done, but because He chose to. Amen. He chose to love you. Amen. Whenever He chose to love you, it wasn't because of what He's seen in you. There is no virtue in fallen man that led God to love you. It was a sovereign choice it was His will. He chose to. Amen. He chose to. Before time ever began, He held you in the grasp of His everlasting power. And nothing in all of creation can break you loose from His grip. Amen. Praise God that He is all-powerful. So now the next four verses in the psalm. Let's look at the next four verses in the psalm which describe the glory and characteristics of God's Word. That will be the next facet. So starting at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. One second. Let me get some of this water. And thank you. Who was it that got me this? Uh, Sam. Sam, thank you. I really appreciate this. Okay, so we have 
a set of six truths in their effects. We have the Word of God and then six effects. So verses 7 and 8, we have four parallels describing God's Word. Each contain a synonym for God's Word and a characteristic of what it actually accomplishes. Verses 7 through 9, we have six truths of the glory of God's Word and the effects of those truths on people who are within the realm of salvation. Let's explore these six truths. One, the law of the Lord is perfect and it converts the soul. We'll expand on that. Number two, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Number three, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Number five, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Number six, the judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. First, the law of the Lord is perfect. It converts the soul. What is he saying here? So for the law here is the instructions of the Lord. It's the entire doctrine of Scripture, but chiefly faith in Christ. Chiefly faith in Christ. Salvation is through one person, the mediator between God and man, and that is the man Jesus Christ. The law is perfect. It's flawless. It's a reflection of the nature of God, but it must be obeyed perfectly if one wants to earn righteousness. But we know that this is impossible. We're fallen, aren't we? We're fallen. We can't obey the law of God. Even saved Christians can't obey the law of God without the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. So even in saved people, we have to have the Spirit. We can't do anything of our own. We can't do anything on our own. So what did Christ do for us concerning the law? I want you to think about this. He obeyed the entire law and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. What was impossible for us to do, He did. Christ obeyed the law perfectly. And that is imputed to us. His passive righteousness and His active righteousness are imputed to us the moment we believe. So He lived the lifestyle that we could never live. So that we could stand before God as if we lived the lifestyle that He lived. And Christ stood before God as if He lived our lifestyle. And that is exactly what the gospel is. That is exactly what the gospel is. Christ stood condemned in our place and we stand righteous in His place. It is only through faith. So Christ obeyed the law in our place. Christ obeyed the law in our place. And you, when you believe, you get that righteousness. The law points us to Christ. The gospel is the means by which sinners are saved, by which we're justified. The gospel in Paul, as Paul says in Romans 1.16, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Now let's look at number two. The testimony of the Lord is mentioned. And it says it's sure. And it makes the effect of it is it makes wise the simple. So this is another word to describe God. God's glorious word as a whole. So the, the testimony of the Lord points to the fulfillment of Christ's fulfilling of the law and all righteousness in our place. The testimony of the Lord is a representation of both God's nature again and our fallenness in sin. And the only way out is Christ. Don't you know that the word testifies of both the righteousness of God and the fallenness of man in sin. And the word of the Lord and testimony of the Lord is true. The testimony of the Lord is said to be sure. It's said to be sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It's a sure foundation. The Word of God can be trusted. The Word of God is unbreakable. It will accomplish its purpose. Let's continue on with these cause and effects. Not only is the Word sure, but it makes wise the simple. Isn't that a wonderful 
thing that the Word of God does. It makes wise the simple. The Spirit of God in conversion doesn't only convert us, but it brings us into wisdom concerning Christ. Christ doesn't just leave you there in a a state of unknowledgeableness. He brings you into wisdom concerning His Word. Like you were saying earlier, how can we learn to prepare to study the Word? I was thinking of saying something, but then I was asked about my memorization techniques. But I'll say it now since I have the opportunity, and that is yielding to the Spirit. Yield to the Spirit because He's the teacher overall. All right, number three, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So the Word of God is the direct revelation of the righteousness of Christ. It's the gift of His righteousness to us who believe in Christ. If it could be summed up in one word, it would be... Righteousness. If God could be summed up in one word, it would be righteousness. Obeying His statutes, obeying His commands, but chiefly the command to believe in Christ is what makes you or I righteous. But doesn't it also rejoice your heart? How many of you remember the moment that you came into conversion, the joy that overtook your spirit? The Word of God literally rejoices the heart of the believer. Once we are converted, the joy of the Holy Spirit bathes the heart. We have a true experience of what it means to actually enjoy life. Let's go to the fourth one. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Amazing, huh? The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So we have commands, imperatives in Scripture that God has put in Scripture for a reason. It's... They cast light into our eyes. This is exactly what it's saying. It gives us vision to see ourselves and judge ourselves based on the nature and character of God. That's the character and the nature that we must judge ourselves by is the nature and character of God. It makes us aware of what we should do, how we should act, who we should trust, and we all know that that's Christ. So the Word of God is like the sun shining in its brilliance, lighting our path and dispelling darkness as we live in the midst of this evil world. Psalm 119.105 says, and I'm sure you're all well aware of this, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So this is another word and characteristics of the Word of God and its effect on us. The Word is pure and it enlightens our eyes. It enlightens our eyes. Let's go to the fifth one. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. First, I want you to understand this. People think that these attributes of God can just be, can, can, can just be all of a sudden produced by the fallen will of man. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. I want you to know that that is the furthest thing from the truth. The will of man outside of Christ is a slave to sin, Satan, and self. That is the three-dimensional layer that Scripture places on mankind outside of Christ. You are blind. You cannot see the truth. You are a slave to your sin. You are doing the work of Satan. Even 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan, the God of this world, blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that the the glorious light of the gospel of Christ would not shine upon them. He keeps the unbelieving unbelieving for the purpose of damning them. He holds his hand over their eyes. The fear of the Lord is a gift. It's not something that you conjure up on your own strength. It's not something that you just all of a sudden gain. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's just as much a gift of God as his faith and repentance. All of these things are the gifts of God. 
I want to read Jeremiah 32, 38 through 41. And it, it shows the fear of the Lord in, in just blazing descriptions. And this includes us because it, it mentions the eternal covenant. And we know the eternal covenant is written and ratified by the blood of Christ. So starting at verse 38. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Then I will give them, I will give them one heart and I will give them one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all of my heart and all of my soul. What a magnificent, what amazing. I mean, amazing. He said, I will put my fear in your heart so that you will not depart from me. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. It endures forever. And think about that for a moment. If it was left up to you to stay in Christ, you would have fallen out the moment you entered Christ. If it was within your willpower to enter Christ, the moment that you made a decision... In the snap of a finger, you could have exited Christ. But the Bible says it is by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us righteousness and wisdom from God and holiness. All of these things are work of the Holy Spirit. This verse doesn't only speak of Israel, but by extension, everyone in Christ. The everlasting covenant come forth by the will of God through Christ being nailed to the cross and bleeding down, spilling redemption over into the creation that rebelled against Him and those who believe enter that covenant through faith. It's incomprehensible to think that God would pour His fear into His creation's heart so that they would never turn from Him. If you are a Christian, be and rest assured that the fear of God will direct you. And even look at what Jeremiah says in verse 39. God will cause us to fear Him for how long? For a couple days? A weekend? For our vacation? As long as I'm in seminary? No, forever. It's everlasting. This is something that will continue forever. So the fear of God is pure. It's undefiled and it's holy. It directs the Christian toward Christ and away from this world. It's almost like it's a GPS, a system steering us toward what glorifies God and away from what glorifies ourselves. There is a fear, though, that doesn't come from the Father. And this is a fear that comes from Satan. It's a fear that comes from this world, and it's altogether polluted. I want you to know and go to a well verse. You don't have to go to it. I'll read it. But this is a well-known verse, and it speaks of a fear that doesn't proceed from God. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and what? Of a sound mind. So the spirit of fear, that spirit of fear that does not proceed from God, a spirit that troubles you, may trouble you, and stop you. And I want you to hear this. If you've been called, and all of us have been called, like you said, what we expand the kingdom, do we not? It's not, it's not that the office of every believer. If a fear is stopping you from accomplishing the expansion of the kingdom, that fear comes from Satan. There is a difference between the pure fear of God that directs you in righteousness and the fear that Satan imposes upon people, causing them to misdirect themselves. 
Any kind of fear that persuades you away from obeying Christ and what God has commanded is a lie. Let's go to the sixth one. The judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. His judgments concerning you, His judgments concerning me, and even His judgments concerning the damned. God is a righteous God. People forget that His holiness is His premier attribute. You know, I like what R.C. Sproul says. He says that the Bible doesn't say that God is grace, grace, grace. The Bible doesn't say that God is love, love, love. But the Bible does say that God is holy, holy, holy. In the superlative, He is holy and His judgments are righteous. The Lord expects you and I to abide in His judgments. And we can do this through yielding to the Spirit. The Spirit creates the fruits of righteousness within us because God has His highest glory in mind and our highest good. There's nothing that God has not given you in Christ. There's nothing that God has not given you in Christ. But the fact remains is we must yield in giving our lives to a judge who is faithful. Now let's move to verse 10. And this is one verse that sums up David's appreciation for the value of God's word. His appreciation for the value of God's word. 10. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey in the honeycomb. So what I think here is, is, is David is saying is there, there, the value of the Word of God is endless, okay? There is nothing in this world that can rise to the importance of the truths contained in God's Word. This world in its form is passing away, and they are destined to perish and have no lasting substance. But the Word of the God endures forever. It's everlasting. It reveals God's truth, and it reveals God's intentions for His people. The qualitative difference between the Word of God and the fading glories of this world is the fact that only the Word of God can birth you anew. There is no wisdom contained in the philosophies of man. And we see this in the book of 1 Corinthians from the first chapter going through to the second. There is no philosophy of man. There is no ideology of man. There is no wisdom contained in this world that can bring you into salvation except for the predestined glory of God that He prescribed before time began for His people to enter into. Absolutely the word of God's truth is valueless. The word of the Lord is said to endure forever. It's everlasting. There's nothing on earth or in heaven that will last like God's word will last. 1 Peter 1, 22-25 puts it like this in perspective saying, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. I want to stop right there. We have a couple things here. Since you have purified, you've been made holy by obeying the truth. Your soul was made holy by obeying the truth, but then listen to what it says. How did that happen? Through the Spirit. Through the Spirit. So many people, that it, so many people think that it's through the fallenness of man's will that, that these things are accomplished. It is through the Spirit. Because if you have a say in it, you'll turn from them. Your heart is a stone block that you wouldn't drag into the presence of a holy God if all creation were standing before you begging you to. God's word is what is, is, is lasts. 
Your soul has been converted because of the incorruptible seed. You were born again through the word and will of God that abides forever. Why? Because all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. What happens? The grass withers and the flower falls away. But in contrast to that, the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which was preached to you, which is the gospel. Verse 23 says that the agent in our birth is the incorruptible seed of God's word that lives and abides forever. So what does that mean? That you're going to live and abide forever. If his incorruptible seed that is everlasting has been planted in your heart, you will live as long as that word lives and it is never ending. This is in contrast to verse 24 that says that the glories of man are fading away. No matter what it may be, wealth, riches, sin, all these things alike will fade away. But God's word endures forever. This is why David says what he says in verse 10. He understood the worth of God's word compared to the uselessness of this world. Now for the last and final block. And I know this is a lot of information for you to take in. But I want to give you a panorama. Briefly of this psalm. Now we got the last block of these verses, which is 11 through 14. This speaks of God's in our holiness, God in our holiness, our sanctification, the application of what has come before is what he's saying. The application of what has come before is what David is saying. All of these things that the Word of God does, the characteristics of the Word of God and their effects on those who believe, this is the application of those truths. Starting at verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors and cleanse me from secret faults? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Verse 11, David speaks of the power of the word of God to warn the believer. And how there's great reward in keeping the Word of God. The Word of God is like a guidepost in the Christian's life. If you travel the road of this life, the Word of truth is guidepost, directing you away from the dangers of sin, directing you away from the dangers of this world. It warns you against false doctrines and anything that can harm you. Second to that is the blessing of keeping the Word of God and all the myriads of blessings that come from obedience in this life. But I think even more so, the blessing of growing in keeping those commandments. There is a bliss for the Christian. There is an endless happiness for the Christian in just obeying the acts of God. If you are a converted person, obeying the truth of Scripture is a joy to your heart. Keeping the commandments, there is great reward. Not only because God is going to reward you at the end, but because you have the opportunity to love God through walking in His commandments. Absolutely. It's a marvelous thing. It's soul invigorating for the Christian to experience the loving God through obeying the commands of God. Let's go to verse 12. It says, Who can understand his errors? That's a question. And then he says to God, Cleanse me from my secret faults. David poses a question concerning any man's ability to truly know the depths of his own sinfulness. Notice that. Who can understand his errors? None of us can understand how deep our sin really runs. 
None of us can understand how deeply offended God and His holiness truly is against sin. I believe He's saying that there are sins that we commit every day that we are completely unaware of. But God in His mercy cleanses from that with the power of the blood of Christ. And then notice this. He says, cleanse me from secret faults. So much escapes our eyes. So much that we are unaware of. There's so much sinfulness that we don't even know about within ourselves. We should continually ask, God, help me. Lord, realize who I am. Help me see myself through the lens of your holiness. Help me and correct me where I don't know where I'm going wrong. To direct me into the right path. And then in verse 13 he says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. And I shall be innocent of great transaction, of, uh, of great transgressions. Excuse me. So continuing on in the application phase, David asked him to keep him back from presumptuous sins. So he's zeroing in on this idea that God is the one who keeps his people from sinning. Even that's not in your own control. The Holy Spirit brings you into obedience to Christ. It's through your will, and your will is active in obeying, but it's not apart from the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who does the work of the Father through the life of the believer, creating in us that which is pleasing to God. And this is a truth all through Scripture. David is wise because if you're well aware of his life, many things he did were apart from the will of God. Many things he did were completely and totally immersed in sinfulness. So he's saying, Lord, keep me from sinning willfully. How many of us have sinned willfully? I have sinned willfully. As a matter of fact, I've probably sinned more willfully than anyone I know. <laughs> but the fact is, is if it's not for God's keeping power, we're going to sin willfully. David says, keep me from sinning presumptuously. That means keep me from looking at sin and walking into it anyway. Keep me from this. It's the equivalence of sinning willfully and also arrogantly. David understands that unless the Lord keeps you, we're going to sin. They will reign over us unless we are liberated by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in true holiness. David sees that the keeping power of God from sin is what will result in him being blameless and innocent of great transgression. I want you to notice that. He says, keep me. That means God, keep me. Keep me from sinning willfully. This will result in his blamelessness and his being innocent of great transgression. Not to mention his positional innocence in Christ. He was a saved man. But he's talking about in his progressive sanctification. Keep me from being sinful. So God keeps us from being sinful through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to lay aside all of the trust in ourselves and place all of our faith in Christ. In other words, we should realize that not only is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but also our sanctification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are sanctified the same way that you are justified, in the same way that you will be glorified. Now for the last and final verse of David's applicationary phase. Verse 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. The words of the mouth and the meditation of the heart are connected inseparably in Scripture. I want you to notice that if many of you have read the Bible, it says that man speaks out of the abundance of his heart. Jesus said that what is in your heart comes out of your mouth. 
David is saying, let the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth represent the nature of who you are, God. Keep me from sin. Purify my heart so that what I say will reflect your word and your truth. Last he says, you are my strength and my redeemer. God is your strength. Amen. He could have allowed me to pull the trigger that day. He could have allowed me to kill myself on drugs like I tried so hard to do. I put a needle in my arm more times than I could possibly count. Every time wondering if it would be the last. But God in His mercy, because He is my strength and my Redeemer, rescued me. Because He's your strength and your Redeemer and your Redeemer and your Redeemer and your Redeemer. He rescued you. Whether or not the sin is low or high, there is, no, there is no scale with God. He doesn't grade on a scale. It's 100% or none at all. You're either all the way in or you're all the way out. Trust in Him. He is your Redeemer. He is your strength against sin. He is your way to holiness. He is your way to victory. Ultimately, God is the source of all the things that we have what have you been given that you've not received? Who makes you to differ than anyone else? What makes you different? God is the one that makes the difference. What have you that you have not received? Everything you have is from the hand of God. The good and the bad. The good and the bad is an instrument in the hand of Almighty God by which He is conforming you to the glorious image of your Savior. And one day your body will be ridden of all of this evil and iniquity and you will stand before the throne of God's endless grace that radiates His truth and righteousness and praise Him for His endless love and claim that the only reason that you are there is because of the shed blood of Christ. So I pray, I pray for you. I pray for you. I pray for you if you don't know Him. If you don't know Him, this does not apply to you. You are not in His mercy. You are not before the throne of His grace. You are before the throne of His judgment. Believe in His sacrifice. I pray that the truth of God's holiness would be so clear to you that you would fall before His throne, fall before His grace, because it's there in Christ for you if you would just believe, if you will repent. I pray Christ would bring you into an understanding of truly just how supreme He is. May the Christ of God Almighty stand blazing at the center of your heart. May He radiate the unfathomable truth and the riches of His glory to accomplish His will in you. Amen. Amen. May have Courtney come up and uh, we're going to sing a response song, but before we do, did you hear what he said? It's only for those who are standing in Christ. And that's not everybody in this room. It's not everybody in this room. And it's not a joke. It is literally heaven and hell serious. You must, we must repent. And that's only a gift of God. You can't do that.
But I think God's moving on someone today. And if he is, nothing's going to hold you back because God does his work and he never fails. Maybe you're a Christian you're like, boy, I forgot how much I've been rescued from. And maybe instead of standing and worshiping, maybe you need to get on your knees. There's an old-fashioned altar up here that has been lonely for a little while. Why don't you, why don't you come and kneel before your, your Savior and your Redeemer? Why don't, why don't you tell him how great he is this morning? Maybe you need to come and confess him as your Savior and Lord. I'd love to hear that confession. I'm going to be right over here. But let's stand right now and let's sing this song. And as it's playing, you, you don't need to sing. Maybe you need to come and pray. But you come and do what God has put on your heart today. But you come and see what God has for you as Courtney leads us.